Welcome to Life Curious Women. I'm your host, Ashley Nadine Lopez, a committed lifelong learner. Between focusing on our wellness, careers, and the values important to us, we can sometimes feel overwhelmed or alone in our purposeful journeys to grow. Each week, we will bring you personal development, inspiration, community, and valuable insights as you continue your journey in becoming the best leader you can be. Welcome to Life Curious Women. I am so glad that you are here with us for another really inspiring and exciting episode. I am currently visiting my family back in Pennsylvania. I am from the Poconos, for those of you who don't know, and recording a podcast in the Poconos versus Brooklyn, New York is totally different because it is completely silent here. And I have to say, it is a funny experience not worrying about where I'm recording in the house or, you know, the the space that I'm in because kind of no matter where I am in the house, it's quiet. So I am kind of loving that for this episode. For those of you who've been keeping up with this season, you know that I've recently had some major changes in my life between changing jobs and moving. It's been a really big transition and it's taken some time to get used to a new normal. And I have to say that finally I am feeling like I'm in a routine. I'm feeling good about how things are going. And my week to week seems to be going a little bit more smoothly. So that's really exciting. And I wanted to share that with all of you because I think that when you're in the thick of Going through major changes can really feel totally unsettling and you're not clear. You don't really know how you're going to get back to feeling normal, to getting into a routine. And I know for me, my wellness routine really took a hit and I wasn't going to the gym, you know, the way I was before as consistently and eating well and all these things. Those things kind of took a hit because of just all of the transition that was going on. And I felt so anxious about getting back on track and, you know, wanting to get back to the progress that I had been making and my my routine that I had before. And once I finally leaned into like, this is never going to be the same. It's going to be a new normal. I'm going to have to find a new normal. I finally started to feel better. And those habits that I had instilled for the past several months have started to fall back into place in a different way, but in a new way. And I'm slowly getting back to where I want to be, but just in a different way. And I feel really grateful, but also kind of funny and and laughing at myself for feeling like I wasn't going to get back on track or that I was going to be really hard. And it kind of just happened naturally. And so I am saying all of this for anyone who is going through some change and who maybe wants to get back on track, that it will happen. Be patient with yourself and be patient with your situation and just understand that it's going to be a new normal and a new way of doing things and maybe even a new way of looking at things. So yeah, I hope that helps you out. All right, let's get into this week's episode. I'm extremely excited for this week's episode. We have someone who is very, very special to me. We have Dr. Emily Bent on this week's episode. Dr. Bent was one of my professors in undergraduate at Pace University here in New York City, and she was really, really influential in my time in undergrad for the short period of time that I knew her in undergrad. She not only expanded my knowledge and and taught me in the classroom and really broadened my horizons on social justice, feminist literature, but expanded it to a global perspective. My senior year, I had to take an internship within the women's and gender studies world, and I was in the middle of a course with Dr. Bent. So, of course, I asked her if she had any suggestion on where to look and what kinds of organizations to look at. And she was actually associated with an NGO with association to the UN. And she suggested looking into it and sending my resume to her. And she gave me the opportunity to intern for them. And I got a chance to not only 
do all the intern things that I needed to do, but be their representative at the United Nations. I got a chance to go to a big youth conference and I got to work with their girl delegates on preparing materials, speeches, and things like that for presentation at the United Nations. When I tell you that she opened up a giant door for me and just expanded all of my knowledge and experience and my world, truly, like expanded my world to an international level. I, I really mean that. And she was really, really influential in fueling a lot of the passions that I have and the work that I enjoy doing and the things that I feel really passionate about. So I'm really, really excited about today's episode. So as I mentioned, Dr. Emily Bent is an associate professor in women's and gender studies at Pace University in New York City. Her research interests include girl-led social justice movements, girls' human rights, and intergenerational feminist activism within transnational contexts. In today's episode, Dr. Bunn takes us on a thought-provoking journey, sharing insights into what drew her to the realm of girls' social justice work, her experiences challenging societal narratives, and the nuances of supporting girls in both academic and activist spaces. We'll explore the pressures faced by girls, the media's fascination with girls' activists, and the challenges of navigating feminist spaces. Dr. Bent also discusses her extensive work involving girl delegates at the United Nations and the importance of creating spaces for young voices in global conversations. Later in the episode, we delve into Dr. Bent's unique experience on raising a son while immersed in a career centered on girls, exploring the importance of instilling thoughtful narratives around gender and embracing the full spectrum of identity. Get ready for an enlightening and empowering conversation. Let's get into it. Take a listen. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to share a little bit of insight on what I've been focusing on in the past couple of months. I have been extremely focused on my physical well-being, and that includes everything from working out to eating healthy to drinking more water, and most importantly, to adding supplements that really support my well-being on the inside and the out. And after doing some research, there is so much science that points to really taking care of your gut. So I was super excited when I came across Ritual's 3-in-1 formula that is a prebiotic, a probiotic, and a postbiotic. I really wanted something that was going to be science-backed, traceable ingredients, and that would help my gut really flourish. What I love about Ritual is that it's women-founded and that they are so transparent about what goes into all of their research and all of the ingredients for each and every single one of their vitamins and supplements. They have everything from a multivitamin to gut health to skin, sleep, protein, pregnancy, pretty much everything that you need. If you want to get $15 off your first purchase, follow the link in our show notes. There are ways to bundle different products together and sign up for a subscription so you never have to think about ordering your supplements. Because the best way to continue to stay life curious is to make sure we are taking care of our bodies and ourselves first. All right, let's get back to the episode. Hello, Emily. Nice to talk to you again. It's been so long. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I like to start off every episode to kind of introduce who you are and tell everyone listening uh, a little bit about like who you are as a person. And it doesn't have to necessarily do with like career, but it can if you want. And uh, yeah, just a little bit about yourself. Well, I am... Let's see, in my 40s, <laughs> I live in New Jersey. Um, I'm an associate professor at Pace and Women's and Gender Studies. And prior to going into academia, I worked for girls nonprofits, which came out of uh, primarily being trained in women's and gender studies and being interested in girl work from the time that I was an undergrad. Um, but I, I am somebody who for better or for worse, wears like a trucker. It's a Jersey thing, I think. Um, and so apologies in advance for those kinds of things. Academia could not break that out of me. I let's see, how else would I describe myself? 
This is a podcast, so you can totally curse anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> Good. The more, the more, the better, right? Exactly. I am a mother to a now six-year-old boy. I, what else about myself? I've been a runner for over 25 years. And, you know, I think I would describe myself as an eternal optimist who's always disappointed. So I tend to have a very pessimistic (laughs) sense of the world. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) I love that. I love that description so much. Great. Yeah. So I want to dive into kind of like how you even started in specifically focusing on girl social justice and why that drew like what what about the girl experience drew you to feeling drawn to that passion? That that question did not make sense. But like what drew you to want to like sort of focus on the girl experience? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it was. kind of a mixture of things. I had both a sort of typical girlhood and um, growing up. And in some ways that means that it was both wonderful and horrible at the same time. Um, And I think the kind of adolescent period for me growing up as a girl was really traumatizing. Um, I went to a very small school. And so there was like a moment where that like quintessential mean girl thing happened where all of your best friends were no longer your best friends and are they your best friends and everybody is kind of nitpicking at one another and because we were such a small class um it was like very very hurtful and impossible to get away from this kind of cluster of people and so that that really in retrospect i think shaped my perspective um and and it shaped my experience in my teenage years and so when i got to university and had the opportunity to take gender studies classes where really we didn't talk about girls we didn't talk about um anyone who was not of age um it was very centered on kind of the adult female experience and um, I, I started writing papers and doing research and talking about, well, what about like before you're identified as a woman, right? Like what about our lives then informs how we think about ourselves as young women, as women, um, what's the impact. And at the same time was when, the sort of in academia, it's like the girls studies world, people started writing about girls. And there was this really clear divide in the literature that was talking about like, essentially white middle class girls experiences and girls of color, and, and painting them in this very contrasting way. And Um, The only thing that was similar was that it was entirely negative, right? So that there was like nothing great that came out of being a girl. It was all about, you know, being labeled at risk in some form or another. So um, that was really troubling to me. And after undergrad and grad school, I decided that I wanted to engage in the nonprofit world and see if I could work with girls to try to both maybe even in some way understand my own experience, but then also kind of figure out how to talk about girls in a more complicated way Um, and and talk about girlhood itself as like an opportunity and not a problem or something to grow out of. Um, and, And so I think that's how I kind of got started in that world. And then once I started like you know, getting over my fear and anxieties and hanging out with teenage girls, which can be really traumatizing, right? Because you're sort of like, oh my God, they have a way of humbling you really immediately. Um, (laughs) It was, uh, it was really fun. And it was interesting to see them too, like be given a space to think about themselves and who they wanted to be while also working through what the world was telling them they had to be or what their friends expected them to be their families um and i and so i think i i got really fascinated with girls in that way right um where 
they, they, I find the more that I work with them, the more surprising they are for me. Um, and, and it just happened to be that like through the years, there's been these various moments where the world's been obsessed with girls. Um, but even still, I think that obsession tends to be very singularly narrated or, um, you know, like a, a broad idea of like, oh, this girl is this, right? And there's nothing else to it. And I like getting more into the complicated pieces of their lives. Yeah, I find that just so fascinating, especially I think a really good example of looking at this is when you look at like celebrities and like celebrities who have gone from childhood to adulthood and just how the different expectations that are set. It's such a magnified like version of, you know, normal girlhood, but it, I, I think it's, it does, it is a really good example of just like what is expected of girls and how the world views them. And just the, this dichotomy there that I think not just women, but girls are always kind of on either side of it's like, you're, you're, you have to be a child, but then there's, the other side of like sexualizing young girls too. And like, sort of like, even now with social media kind of like making that a bigger part, a part of all of this. And I think you're right. Like, I think that like, we forget about young girl experiences and we think that like these things only come into play once you turn into an adult. <laughs> and it's like, it's strange that we don't, still we I still think that like a lot of it is missing in when we talk about things that are affecting women and we don't talk about like where it all starts you know yeah I mean there's sort of like these we have all, a lot of moral panics surrounding girls right so mm. the concern that they're either too mean or they're too nice or they're too sexual they're um they're too innocent or they're I think you know, a part of like the media obsession very recently with the sort of celebrity girl activists, right? Is that mm. he, the obsession with them, the obsession with people like Greta or Malala or, yeah. you know, it, it becomes this like perverse platform in which they, they, they can't escape then the narrative that has been created around them, no matter what they do. Um, and, and many of them have talked about this too, like that they can also make mistakes and that they aren't only defined by being the climate change activist or, you know, the girl who was shot by the Taliban, who's now in fact, a young adult woman, but is still, sort of codified in the world's mind as always a 15 or 16 year old girl um, who had one singular defining experience. And I think, I think it's that singularity. We're very comfortable with, um, you know, these like broad paint strokes of this is who girls are. And then there's also the, you know, on the plus side, girls are being represented and people are seeing girls in, in new ways. Um, but then the problem or the, the challenge becomes that, you know, for girls who are not celebrity girl activists, right. The sort of everyday girl, there's an increased amount of pressure to some extent that's been created that you now need to be, <laughs> as the Greta's and Malala's, and that can become really problematic. So, so there's all these kinds of, and I think some of it is, is a part of just American culture and our obsession with perfection. And, and in some ways, adolescent girls amplify all of our best and worst qualities um, as they're navigating these spaces. But it's, it's definitely, it's like, you know, it's hard work, I think, for girls themselves. And then it's also work that needs to be done collectively. Because uh, we tend to sort of like isolate girls at the same time too, right? That there's not like some of the new kind of work that I've been looking at is, is like what are really supportive relationships look like between 
girls and older generations. And there's not a lot of representation of that. There's a lot of sort of presentation of like girls being against the world or girls versus their mothers or girls versus, right? And there's a lot of really fantastic like intergenerational support that's happening that doesn't often get as much presence and visibility, but I think because it's more complicated, it's harder to explain mm. that and, and come up with like a headline, right. To say like, Hey, you can actually have real relationships where you challenge one another. Um, and it's not hierarchical and that that is sometimes more effective for social justice work than having the individual leader that's given the podium all the time or whatever. Um, and so, but yeah, it's, it's really, um, to me, it's fascinating work, but it's also like, you know, kind of so complicated sometimes that I can see why people are drawn to the simplicity of saying like, girls will change the world or something. But if you think of that slogan or, you know, or, um, like girls lead and all this stuff is that, if we think of it in the context as not necessarily an empowering slogan always, but sometimes as really pressure building, like girls will change the world, like good job. Now you need to fix all of the world's problems in addition to just figuring out yourself. And I think that that's something that the feminist movement should be really concerned with. Wow. But, you know, <laughs> but there's yeah. a lot the feminist movement is concerned with. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you think that the reason why the that happens and that girls are have kind of been left behind in the in these conversations is because like because maybe they don't have as much agency as uh, is it an age thing or what what is the reason do you think? Yeah, I think it's there's probably a lot of reasons to it. Some might in some spaces, I think adults don't actually want to hear girls' opinions. Um, mm. So I've been in spaces where girls are invited to share, but if they share something that doesn't reinforce what the adults in the room already think they know about their lives, or they say something that they don't understand, it's sort of glossed over, sidelined, pushed aside. And that that practice just reinforces for them that this isn't a space where they're going to be respected. I think sometimes it's that people just sort of give it an age label, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's important now, but just wait until you're older, Yeah, which is really dismissive, <laughs> right? And so it's an immediate trigger that, no, this isn't the space for me either. Um, and then other times I think it's that, you know, there's there's patterns of of hierarchy, there's patterns of age-based assumptions that are just sort of in our everyday learned lives. Um, I think sometimes these spaces of power just are not friendly to anyone who's going to step out of the established pattern. And so in that way, I think there are different, different groups of girls who will just never find those spaces as useful, right? So they might strategically decide I'm going to spend more of my time and voice and energy engaging, for example, with young people in my community, because I can see more effective change there versus telling members of the UN over and over and over again, the same thing, and then pulling it out and making it into a slogan rather than actually taking it seriously and building this into policy or something. Right. So, so I, I think that it's like, it's multi-pronged in that way. Um, I've been in some spaces where it's been really hostile towards girls being able to share an authentic voice. Um, and then I've been in spaces that have been in the moment really strong and powerful. And now interestingly, like, you know, I've been, for example, going to the UN and engaging at the UN on behalf of girls and with girls and for girls for a long, long time, longer than I'd like to, to acknowledge, <laughs> like over 20 years though, at this point. Um, and, and there was a sort of moment where everyone was really interested and invested in bringing girls to the table, so to speak. Right. And now we've, 
those of us who are in this work are finding ourselves needing to almost return back to where we started and explaining why they need to bring adolescent girls to the table for conversation and engagement and leadership and participation. Um, but but not in a tokenistic way, right? And so, and people are still like, yeah, but how do we do that? It's almost like everyone forgets how to have a relationship as soon as you say it's with, you know, a political relationship with an adolescent girl, then it becomes like, oh, well, can we do, how do, how do we speak with them? How do we ask them? <laughs> like, they're like an alien species, right? Like you do know how to talk to them, but I, there's like something that happens um, in people's brains that it like, you know, suddenly are, they're unable to engage. And maybe that's some um, like unexplored trauma that people carry from girlhood. I don't know. Uh, but it is interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's that makes sense to me, because I think that um, and we'll talk a little bit about this. But like even when I was in your class and we went and did CSW, like there were so many moments and I'm not, I wasn't super young, but I, I think that there was so many moments where you get dismissed because you're just a younger voice. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think people don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Cause I, I feel like my, that's one of the things that I remember distinctly about my childhood is my, so my mom was always very empowering of my, of me and like my voice and she never treated me like a kid. Like she was never like, your opinion doesn't matter or that like, she wouldn't speak to me like a child. Like she spoke to me like anyone else. Like we would have normal conversations. And like, she, like, she made it a point that like, she was always like, I hate baby talk. Like, you know, just things like that, that like, she just like, was like, no, like, uh, and so she kind of treated me like, you know, a person always. And, And that was always like a thing that I remember growing up. And I remember when, I would notice when other adults would treat me that way. Like I would always notice when an adult would make eye contact with me and engage in like a normal like conversation. And I just always distinctly remember when I would be, when that would happen. And I would say that to my mom and be like, Oh, I really liked that person. Like they treated me like normal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) you know and like I I don't know why but it just was always something that was that really stood like it's a distinct memory for me of like having moments like that where I'd be like oh I liked that person because they asked me like how I was and like Mm -hmm. talked to me about things and they weren't just I don't know like they didn't just like exclude me from being there you know I don't know so those are things that I I, like kind of remember and I think it, it goes back to my mom too that like her making me feel seen in, in, in a way that was different than a lot of other adults, but yeah. So anyways, that, I I think that like, that is just, that really does ring true, especially in those spaces where it is an intimidating space in general, but I think that like, there's a power dynamic and them feeling like their opinions and their voices kind of are the only thing that really, that only, they're the only thing that that hold weight versus you know maybe someone who's like younger oh they don't really know what they're talking about you know and which is just I don't even know how you fix that like I don't even know how you fix something like that because it's like so ingrained I don't know like have you what what do you think that works like what do you what have you seen that works in those spaces I mean I think part of what part of what has been I don't know if it's necessarily that it works on, you know, people who are in positions of power or not, but sometimes I think that they're actually not the ones that we need to be engaging with. It's like the people behind them who are doing all the real work, right? That they're the ones that tend to be able to, to shift things or get people to think about something differently. But I think one of the most powerful ways that I've seen girl activists kind of take on these spaces is that they really own how uncomfortable they make everyone. Mm. <laughs> and that is like, I really think that a part of our obsession or 
or kind of like spotlight on teenage girls, adolescent girls is that they make us uncomfortable. It's this very clear um, kind of moment, I think, for the culture to recognize and see just how heavily we sexualize um, women and girls um, feeling really uncomfortable with like the fact that you know, we do have a really strong narrative and, and structures of support saying to girls now, like you can do anything. And then they reach teenage years and are confronted with structures that have never been adapted and changed to make it so that they could do anything. And they're more comfortable calling people out on that. Right. And so I think some of the spaces that I've seen work really well is when those of us who are, you know, in this girl centered work, like we try to prep girls as much as possible to say, like, you're not alone in seeing that this structure is not set up to support you, but you can say it and we will support your voice in saying that you're not, you may not get that type of supportive response from those who are, you know, upholding the hierarchy or whatever, but we will be here to support and say that what you are saying is worth saying. And so sometimes I think that's the space that those of us who are interested in girl leadership and authentic girl leadership can do is, but it's hard. It's really hard to figure out, like, how do you both support that development and you know, feeling that you do have agency and you are seen while also at the same time saying you are not going to be seen by everyone and you may not be seen by those that you want to Mm. see, but I see you. And that may not be enough. It may never be enough and it shouldn't be enough. (laughs) Right. But at the very least we can be here as the sort of like adolescent girl elders (laughs) who can help you along the way. But that I think sometimes is hard too for like, you know, young women and older women who are interested in, in working with girls to like, to also let them do and say what they need to do and say, Mm -hmm. because as we get older, we buy more into the systems than we maybe even want to acknowledge and and we get power and authority from those spaces and so you know like at the UN we have to be comfortable with using that to give more space for girls but then making sure that we're not at the same time trying to change what they want to say right or like kind of playing both sides in inherently silencing them so that somebody else could hear them um So it's, it, you know, it is, it doesn't get any easier, but I think it's nothing that was ever worthwhile was easy from my perspective. Everything that I fight hard against, like, oh God, I don't want to do that. I just really don't want to are the things that end up being the most transformative in my life. And I kind of think like, if you were to ask me, what was the most horrible time period of your life growing up? I probably would have said it like middle and high school. It was horrible. I absolutely hated it because it just felt like everything was out of control and so emotional and difficult and et cetera. Um, and so of course that's what I end up focusing my professional and personal life. (laughs) Right. Is like, let me return to that over and over and over again. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's a struggle, but it's an important struggle to try to engage with. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I want to get into a little bit about your academic work. Um, mm-hmm. So if you could tell us a little bit about how you transitioned into like wanting t- to work in academia and then uh, tell us about what CSW is and then how you created a course around that. Yeah, so I... um. I worked for different girl nonprofits for about a, about a decade after finishing undergrad and my master's in women's and gender studies. And I really loved all of that work, but I missed the sort of intellectual engagement around it. And I missed being in the university space. 
Um, I think I always knew that I wanted to go back for a PhD and to, you know, try to, to get into that world a little bit more. Um, and, and so let's see, how did it end up kind of unfolding? So as I said, the things in my life that are the most struggling become the center of them. So in my nonprofit work, the last job that I had before I went on for my, um, my doctorate, one of the jobs that they gave to me was that I was to engage with the United Nations and, um, they wanted to, this girl organization wanted to bring girl activists and delegates to the United Nations to attend the Commission on the Status of Women. Um, and this was in 2006 or so, 2007. And, and so they said, you know, your job is basically going to have to be that you have to go to these meetings and you have to try to create spaces for girls to engage and UN meetings, if you've ever like beyond the CSW, they are so, oh my God, it's like very dry, very um, hierarchical. Uh, and I literally said to my bosses at the time, like, I will take out a piece of my salary and you can hire someone else to go to the <laughs> Like, I just cannot do it. And they were like, Emily, you have to be there. This is important for you. And so it's like, all right, fine. But again, the things I fight against are the things that become the centerpiece of my life. I realized after being there for many, many times um, that there was an opportunity for a young professional to say, you know, I'm not a girl. They used to refer to me as a girl. And I was like in my twenties and it's like, no, no, <laughs> you want to talk to somebody under the age of 18, but it, it, it became a really important space in that I learned where there were avenues and, um, mentors and, and older women in these positions of power who were looking to, pass the torch, if you will, or to, to open up some space. And, um, and so from there, that's, that eventually developed into my doctoral dissertation as I looked at the commission on the status of women and, and what girls from all over the world who were attending this event, what they hoped to get out of it, um, what opportunities and challenges they experienced as political leaders, both in their lives, but then also in particular in the United Nations. Um, and, and so that then eventually led to this class that I, I brought to pace on the CSW. Um, and, and it really, I think a part of, so the Commission on the Status of Women has been happening. We're now entering into um, CSW 67, I think. Wow. Um, so for 67 years or so. And every single year, women and um, gender equality activists from all over the world come together and meet with policymakers with the intention of identifying structures of inequality or systems of inequality and working together to find some sort of way forward, right? How do we address this problem? What are some solutions? What are the specific ways that this identified problem um, impacts people's lives in this community? And then how does that help us understand how systemic inequality functions in a larger sense? Um, and, you know, every time that I was in these spaces, I thought like, this is really, you want young people there right? You want younger voices. You also want voices outside of the UN policy system, because when you have an outside voice and perspective, that person is able to ask questions that you have forgotten to ask, right? Yep. Of why do we do things this way? Or why can't we try this thing? Or, hey, I've already been doing this thing and it's successful. And here's how you could amplify it. And because I had found that, you know, for teenagers, this space was really powerful, I thought, why not at the college level where you could marry both the experience of being in this really powerful space and having a passion for social justice and having a passion for equality worldwide with then the opportunity to intellectually 
digest the experience with your peers at the same time. Um, so that's where the idea of the, the CSW class came from. And, and I think to some extent, you know, it depends on the year and how, how invested students are in the class. But I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to see people go through the sort of emotional ups and downs of the CSW, which is two weeks, like, you know, the excitement at the beginning and the kind of intimidation to the anger at <laughs> the space to kind of like, okay, sure, this has been effective. And then in the end, you know, most deciding that they don't ever want to work at the United <laughs> Nations ever, but <laughs> at least understanding and respecting that this is a powerful space if you want to engage it. But yes. yeah, that's the... Yeah. Short story, I guess. Yes. Yes. And I think so. We were the first class, I think, to go. So I was in Emily's class and I was I was part of the You've first class. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Because we this was I graduated in 2016. Like way pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. But yeah, I graduated in 2016. So this class was in 2016. Mm -hmm. And that year was the year of the election. Which that really affected a lot too. So like, I remember going, I, I, I was laughing when you were talking about that sort of like roller coaster. Cause I, I remember feeling like that where it was like so much excitement in the beginning. And like, I think we had a really great class and like, we were all like really invested and, and then going into those spaces and then realizing that like a lot of times, like, people just didn't want to hear what you had to say. Mm -hmm. And that was hard. And I attended like a really intense event during that time that I, I was home crying after that. Mm -hmm. And it was so intense because anyone's allowed to present at these, in these events. So there was like a conservative group. And I thought... <laughs> It was like me and I think like two other students from the class went to this event and it was like, a, it, I think it was titled something along the lines of like political correctness or something like something about political correctness. And like, I totally misunderstood the event. I thought it was going to be like a, like a more progressive conversation. And I, we went to it and it was a total like bashing of trans people and just put, like putting political correctness as like a negative thing mm -hmm. and it was rough like it was a rough event and we sat there and listened to them uh, just talk about all these things and there was like a catholic group there like with students there and like like it, it was it was tough and like they talked about how privilege doesn't exist and it was like the craziest thing I had ever like actually sat like I obviously you hear about things like you're not around those and you're such in a bubble you know I think and and I remember that and I remember being there and like someone raised their hand and like asked a question and then I raised my hand and asked a question about like the privilege piece and it like essentially they were saying that privilege doesn't exist like white privilege doesn't exist and that like it just comes down to whether or not like your family loves you and cares about your future and la 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 and I I, I think I asked a question about like about that and I was like I don't really understand how like for example like my last name is Lopez like that will always proceed who I am like that there's always going to be some conception about that like and they gave me like a BS answer and I kind of put gave some pushback and we left the event and someone came up to us because it was a couple of us that had asked questions and they were like what where are you guys from <laughs> like, like who are you guys and we're like oh we're from Pace like, we're like, we're like this is part of a course like we're here and they're like I, I forget who the woman was I think she was I think she made a might have been like a professor at a different New York City University or something like Baruch or somewhere. I don't remember. But and afterwards, it was like a major moment of like feeling this like I don't even know, like blindness almost of like just like 
saying stuff. But then afterwards, the emotional part hit me where I was like, I can't believe people like this exist. And like, this is why like Trump is running and like why this is happening. And it was like a giant like wave. And I like by the end of the two weeks was like so drained from all of that. And I totally what you said in the beginning of like be like an internal optimist, but always expecting the worst. Like I totally that work is so draining and there there is that level of like you feel that hope and that passion. But then when you're like constantly faced with seeing the opposite, it's hard. It's hard to like really maintain that, you know? Yeah. But I think that like what you're doing with the course is so powerful because of that, because it exposes students to spaces that like we normally would never be exposed to. And especially going to school in New York city, because I think that in New York city where you are in a bubble. And I think that like, if you are at a school like pace or NYU or Columbia, like they're pretty liberal campuses and the, if you're especially in like women's and gender studies or social justice major, like, you know, they're, you're especially surrounded by a lot of people that agree with you. So I think that like going to the CSW and being exposed on an international level that like, there's way more layers. Like you think you're going to go to this space and people are just going to like agree and, and want to fight for the right thing. Right. But then you're faced with like, that's not the reality. And there's like so much more work that needs to be done. So anyways, I don't know how you've done it. All these years. <laughs> yeah, it does get, there are some years where it's like, yeah, no, I, I need a break from this, but it is, I mean, it's, I think interestingly now I'd say that, that in some ways your experience was also a sort of inevitable precursor to where we are now, where mm-hmm you know, within certainly the United Nations, um, but all over the U.S., we have the so-called parental rights movement. And in the U.N., it's referred to as a family, the right of the family. And, you know, it's it's one of these, these ways that I think conservative factions have become very adept at co-opting language and Mm. making things appear as if it is going to be a friendly space when in fact it's one that is is really hostile yes Um, and and every single year you know I try to well every time I teach the class because I don't do it every year simply because it is very emotionally you know troubling and exhausting but Every year I try to tell the students, like, be careful because sometimes I can tell you, okay, this organization is known for creating that kind of space and environment. So you maybe don't want to go to that event. Um, But they're very good at renaming themselves, you know, trying to sort of fly underneath the radar, but increasingly they don't have to anymore. Um, is even more, you know, disturbing and troubling when you think about like the feminist history that the Commission on the Status of Women has had, um, that because the United Nations is a space that is supposed to be about open dialogue and conversation, um, you know, people, anyone is welcome. And yet at the same time, I think there's a real tangible struggle for leadership to say anyone is welcome, but you are not welcome if you are here to purely disrupt or you're here to deny someone's human rights or you're here to create a space of trauma. Um, and and I think the the CSW leadership has not quite figured out how do you do that well? How do you monitor yeah. someone is and an organization is purposefully planting themselves. Right. Um, and, and it happened this year too. It's really, but as on the student side, it's really eye opening. Yes. Um, And I think you're absolutely correct. Like for students who are in women's and gender studies, who are in peace and justice studies, anything that's, that's concerned with this more kind of progressive line. And oftentimes students are interested in this work because they have experienced 
that conservative world and are are purposefully putting themselves out of it, right? Like yes. coming to New York to escape something and to then be thrown into it in a space that you assumed was going to be progressive and supportive and building solidarity can, it feels really, really harmful and harsh. And, and it's an unfortunate kind of continuing development that, that has happened every time I've gone to the CSW, but yeah. 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 And I think in a way, like I will always remember that situation, but I don't regret it. Like I, Mm -hmm. it really, really helped me. And like, I think it was the, it was so early on before the election that like, it really opened my eyes to be like, no, no, no. Like we think that these things are so far away, but they're not. And people believe these things. And now, obviously years later, we know that, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. like, you know, like you said, it's like, they don't really have to like hide anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, so obviously now we know that, but I think that that was like the first introduction, like face on where I was like, oh, wow, people have a lot of hate towards trans people, towards anything progressive, like any sort of like equaling of the, you know, playing field. There's this level of like anger and hate and like, I guess, fear, you know, and and that was definitely eye opening. So like, thank you for creating this course. (laughs) Cause I think it's, I, like I said, I think it's so important and like, I think it's really valuable. I think it's something that like, I would have never been exposed to otherwise. So it's like, it's something that like, I think is important for, for students, you know, with working within that world. I wanted to ask one last big question, which was just to talk a little bit about being a mom and how that has like influenced your work especially being a boy mom and like how do you think that's changed if it has changed anything for you yeah I mean of course you know my whole world is girls and I was totally prepared to of course have a baby girl and um end up with with raising a feminist boy but Mm -hmm. I will say it's been um it's a different kind of challenge um I think you know, the, the verdict is still out on how successful or not successful we're being with him. But, um, you know, I think I've, I'm overly kind of conscious about certain narratives with him, um, that, you know, like he, from a very, very early age, no was an important word for him to hear and understand. And there's an entire kind of subset of parental um, advice that says, you know, you just never, there's a whole group of people who are like, you don't use no with children, you just redirect them. And for me, it's important for boys to hear no, and to recognize that no is hard stop, we're done. Um, And so of course, he's young and, and no means like, don't you know, put your finger in that light socket or no, we're not <laughs> going to eat candy right now or whatever. But I think it does have these longer implications that are important for, for us. And I think boy world has been, uh, I guess I, in many ways, I never really like thought about boyhood, if that makes sense. Right. Like it, I grew up with brothers and so I understood that their world was like different from mine, but in some, in some senses I cared about them, but I didn't really care about the context of boyhood. And, and I think it's been balancing in some ways for me to like Mm. think about boyhood and masculinity and, um, and, and what it means to, to raise a kind of thoughtful child around ideas of gender today. Um, he he has, I think, in some ways he recognizes that the things I talk to him about and that data talks to him about are not the same things that his friends are hearing. Um, and there are moments where I'm like, oh, good, proud feminist mama moment. And then others where I'm like, oh, God, that did not go the way that I wanted it to. You know, he he came home one day and he took out um, 
Alice in Wonderland at the library and was like all excited to read it. And one of his friends said, you can't take that book out because it's for girls. And, and so Declan said to me, well, but mama, you told me there are no such things as books that are only for girls and books that are only for boys, that there's just books. And I'm like, yes, this is true. And so he said, you know, so I told my friend, no, no, there's no such thing. So I'm like, okay, good. There's some yeah. messages that are coming through in their own way. Um, but I think the, the larger challenge, you know, is, is also trying to, talk to him about intersectionality in a way that makes sense for a six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, that is, and, and I think also just like being an academic and trying to come up with ways to explain <laughs> things simply is really hard with a kid because <laughs> they love everything to be one way or the other. Right. It's like, yes. well, black and white. <laughs> Right. And it's like, ugh, but it's just not like that. And so how do I explain the complicated relationship that you have to this world and whatever? And so that's an ongoing challenge. But I think, you know, it's um, it was a surprise. It was a shock. Um, and and I think it was uh, a good shakeup in my life for sure. Um, yeah. And and it's there's something really wonderful also about you know, trying to like maintain a space for him to exist as a full person um, mm -hmm. and not, not hide or be ashamed of the things that, you know, he's told are not supposed to be in boy world. And then for me, I, it's been, it's a real struggle to like, let him do quintessential boy things. Like, you know, he really wants to, I don't know, there's one kid in school. He just always wants to wrestle with and I'm yeah. like, do we have to be violent. Do we have to do this? <laughs> like, can't you be peaceful? Um, but it's important for him to understand like, you know, his own physicality. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, um, that's the current like moment of challenge, I think is yeah. like, how do you, understand and yet also learn to respect your body and others bodies and and that sort of thing but it's um yeah it's it's exhausting absolutely exhausting yeah yeah world and mamahood <laughs> yes both yeah. yeah yeah that's so awesome that's so fascinating i can't wait to keep like hearing more about this whole journey for you because i feel like <laughs> it's gonna keep like you're gonna keep you know, facing new and newer and newer phases as he's growing older. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm not looking forward to adolescence, but yeah. people tell me, you know, my husband's like, it's not bad. I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> adolescence was absolutely awful. And he's like, no, it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really, really amazing. And I'm so excited to be able to share this with everyone. Where should everyone connect with you and your work? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, thank you for inviting me to, to chat with you. It's always, it's, I get to follow you on, on yeah. <laughs> your journey. So it's great to, to connect this way. Yeah. I mean, people can find me. I think I have a page at Pace. I'm so bad with getting onto social media and mm -hmm. things these days, but they can always email me at ebent at pace.edu. Cool. Um, and yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emily. This has been great. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Life Curious Women. If you'd like to stay connected, make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player platform. We are consistently growing the show. And if you'd like to help in that, take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and review. It helps boost the podcast and show new listeners what you love about the podcast so that they will listen in too. If you think someone could benefit from this episode, make sure to share it with them or share it on social media and make sure to tag us at Life Curious Women. And lastly, one of the best ways you can stay connected is by signing up for our newsletter so that you get information on new episodes, updates with Life Curious Women events, and lastly, any updates with the Life Curious Women membership coming soon. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay life curious.